When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay tax? He said, Yes. And when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From the sons or from others? And he said to them, From others. And Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give an offence to them, go to the sea and cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Pleasure to be speaking to you once again. If you're watching this at the Clarendon Centre, the Hove site, the Shoreham site, Oasis site, or watching this online, you just heard a passage from Matthew chapter 17, and it seems to be about the topic of taxes and obligations to pay them. So... There you go. Who says the Bible isn't relevant to today? We're doing this message just a week after a former chancellor has just been sacked uh, for the investigation into his taxes. And here we have Jesus being questioned about his tax arrangements. I guess that old adage is true. The only certainties in life are death and taxes. I believe it was Benjamin Franklin who popularized that phrase, although maybe it dates from earlier. But we're in a series called Hope is Here, and we are looking at Jesus and different interactions that he had with people in the second half of the book of Matthew. And as I've just mentioned here, we start in this story with, in one sense, maybe a seemingly mundane, or you might think quite irrelevant question about taxes. We have a little miraculous fish business towards the end of it as well. But the question we're asking is, how does this show, you know, what does this show us about Jesus that can bring hope to our lives? You might think it's a bit of a tall order given this passage, but I'll see what I can do. Let's get into the story here. What is, what is happening here in this interaction? Well, it's a question about taxes that's brought to Peter. And it's interesting that this story is actually only found in the Gospel of Matthew. Many of the stories from the Gospels feature in several of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And we shouldn't confuse this story with a similar sounding story where Jesus is asked about taxes, but that's the Roman taxes. And Jesus comes out with a phrase, render to Caesar that which is Caesar. But this is a different incident and it's only recorded by Matthew and it's to do with the Jewish temple tax. You may know Matthew, the gospel writer, who is one of Jesus' disciples, was a former tax collector. And maybe perhaps that is why there are so many references to money uh, in the gospels. Matthew was looking at things through that lens and maybe that's why only he includes this story in his account of Jesus's life. It never actually occurred to me before I was thinking about this and thinking about Matthew. Personally, my dad actually worked most of his life at HMRC and he's named me Matthew. I'm just suddenly realizing there might be something in that, but there you go, that's a side point. The question, the tax that's involved here is actually relates to something that's found. We can look back into the Old Testament, the Bible, and in Exodus chapter 30, there was instituted amongst the Jewish people uh, a tax 
for money that would go towards the upkeep of the, the tabernacle, which was the, the tent that was used as a place of worship uh, in the wilderness for the Israelites at that time. And it's something that seems to be carried over and then applied to the later temples that were built. And according uh, to Exodus 30, everyone basically who was over the age of 20, every Jewish person, owed half uh, a shekel. It was a flat rate tax. Interestingly, the rabbis were exempt from this. So, you know, tax collectors coming to Peter and asking Peter and about Jesus and say, does your teacher, does he pay the tax? And so it's kind of a challenge. Is Jesus an official rabbi or not? And this, if you're familiar with the gospel stories, often Jesus encountered this. Religious leaders, people in authority would try and ask him questions, try and point things out to trip him up or to catch him out. And there's definitely something of that happening here in this story. It's also perhaps interesting to reflect on when we think about why did Matthew include this story uh, in his gospel account and it might be to do with who Matthew, the gospel writer, had in mind when he was writing. We understand that Matthew's gospel was written about A.D. 80. Now the temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, had been destroyed 10 years before that in A.D. 70. But what happened was that after that happened, the Romans kept instituting this tax on the people, even though the temple wasn't there anymore, the Romans had destroyed their temple and said, actually, that tax that you've been collecting for your temple, now you owe it to us, and we're going to put it towards the Roman temple of Jupiter. And so there was something of a contentious issue. The Jews obviously did not at all want to pay this tax, but it was seemingly forced uh, upon them. And the questions for Christians whether Jewish or not, was should they pay this, this tax? And so perhaps Matthew is trying to help his original audience of the gospel understand how would Jesus respond in this kind of situation where a tax is being asked of us, but we don't feel that we should pay it, but, you know, how should we respond in that situation? And perhaps Matthew is giving people whose example of Jesus say, hey, Jesus faced this situation. He's asked for tax money. Jesus is in a situation, as we'll go on to unpack, he doesn't feel that he should pay the tax. It's unjust to claim it against him. But yet, he does it anyway. Maybe this corresponds to other teaching that we have of Jesus in terms of turning the other cheek or going the extra mile. Then after that question of taxation, Peter comes in and has a conversation with Jesus. And did you notice, maybe you have the passage in front of you now, even though Peter, it seems that Peter was asked by the tax collector, but then he enters a room and Jesus starts the conversation. Jesus speaks first. And that's a feature, again, in the Gospels. We see that often. Jesus seems supernaturally to know what people are thinking or know what people are going to say, know what's in people's heart. And Jesus in his conversation with Peter says, 
he implies, heavily implies, that he doesn't owe the tax. And he talks about sons are free. And we'll unpack that a little bit later. But he doesn't want to cause offence. And then what does he do? He, he speaks to Peter and says, tells him to cast a hook and, and the first fish that Peter is to pull out of the water will have a coin in its mouth, which would be the exact amount for the tax that's being asked and would cover Peter and Jesus. Notice Matthew doesn't actually write that the events took place. He's just giving Jesus's response. Now, we shouldn't necessarily conclude that the event didn't subsequently take place. We've seen right the way through Matthew's gospel, there are plenty of miracle accounts of things that Jesus did and caused to happen. And the pr previous passage has just been about Jesus casting out a demon. So there's, Matthew has no hesitation in describing miraculous events. But it's interesting, he just, these are just the words of Jesus, not describing something that literally uh, is being des described as happening. <laughs> it might be worth pointing out as well that coins in fish's mouths were perhaps more common than we might uh, expect. Reading the commentaries on this, it seems that the sort of common mushed fish in the Sea of Galilee, let me get it right, Talapia, Galilea, it was a very common fish in the Sea of Galilee. And apparently it does have uh, a sort of oversized mouth, <laughs> so much so that apparently if another predator fish came along, smaller fish would hide inside the mouth of this common fish. And so it's not inconceivable that a fish might, you know, a coin falls into the sea and the fish grabs it in his mouth and it gets stuck in its mouth. But of course there is this, the aspect of Jesus's supernatural knowledge that he's demonstrating that he would say, you catch that fish and it'll be in its mouth. How would Jesus know that? Well, supernaturally it seems. But it's also worth noting that this supernatural knowledge of something happening is actually a gift of the Holy Spirit talks about in the New Testament uh, for in, to, be, to be used potentially even in the lives of believers, a word of knowledge. We believe this is something that the Holy Spirit can do, give someone insight, give someone knowledge uh, about a situation that they would otherwise not know about. So there's lots going on there, and it's not 100% clear whether Jesus is being literal or he could be speaking figuratively as well. And why is he saying, catch this fish? And it seems a bit of an elaborate thing to say or to suggest. And there couldn't be, could be a figurative meaning perhaps. So let's consider that now. What, what, does this mean? what does this mean? What does this story mean? I think one aspect of it definitely is that this episode is perhaps emblematic of Jesus's interactions with the religious leaders of his day. I've said already they were often trying to catch him out, trying to say something to trip him up. And in response, Jesus was constantly pointing out their hypocrisy, their bad motives. And so it's not... It's reasonable to conclude that Jesus might be saying here, if these guys want money, get it from a mouth of a stinking fish. 
<laughs> because they're, they're all about money and that stinks. <laughs> so it could be that Jesus is playing on that idea and trying to highlight their evil motives by giving this example of, you know, get the money out of a fish's mouth. Jesus was in many parts of the gospel challenging the evil motives of these supposed religious leaders. And it was, it's not actually long before we get to Jesus' challenge to them goes from being subversive to overt. Matthew 21, we'll get to it in a few weeks' time. Jesus goes to the temple and starts overturning the, money ta- the tables full of money. So Jesus' opposition to the religious leaders and how they've changed what should be the worship of God to the pursuit of money is wrong. And so he would be, he constantly challenges it through the gospel. And we see uh, how that develops in Jesus' life as he gets closer to the end of his life. Here in this season, we're still in a space of Jesus. He's telling parables. He's speaking in terms of stories. He's undermining the religious authorities with his words and challenging them but he's doing it in a slightly subversive way. Later on, we'll see that Jesus is doing it in a more overt way. And he moves even geographically from the surrounding areas to Jerusalem where it comes more overt. And I say all that to say that Jesus is demonstrating here in relation to injustice and in relation to authority, there there are two ways of responding and actually, either can be right given the given the, the 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 situation, the context. Faithful submission to an authority, even in the face of injustice, there is a place for that. What was interesting, I find, when I was looking at this, is to think it's, it's Peter that this story happens with. And I'm sure that Peter had this story in mind and the way Jesus responds to this demand for money when he writes what we know is to be his letter of 1 Peter. In chapter 2, Jesus write, sorry, Peter writes this. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. (laughs) You know, Jesus just said that, sons are free. But not using your freedom as a cover for evil, but living as servants for God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. To me, that's just like Peter is reliving the events that we're hearing about in Matthew 17 in writing. He's seeing Jesus. Jesus is one who is free, but yet he is submitting. There's a place for that sometimes in order to honour God. And even that phrase that he uses there, to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That's exactly what Jesus does. He, he's, he, Jesus said, you know, just give him the money. I don't want to cause offence to him. But he's silencing the ignorance of foolish, because the tax collector is absolutely ignorant of who Jesus is and the fact that Jesus is the son of God. He does not need to pay taxes to further the worship in the temple. 
Silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so I wonder if there's an application for us on, on this point of even responding to authority, even when we feel it is unjust. Peter writes, fear God, honor the emperor. And sometimes to, to, to fear God, to do what is right, to be a, a Christian who follows Jesus is to honor, honor the emperor, even though the emperor is ungodly. This is a theme in the New Testament. And it's a theme that actually epitomizes the, the early church, the first Christians. So much of the first few centuries of the church that Christians were under persecution from the Romans. How did Christians respond to that? Well, it was actually their non-violent perseverance despite the persecution that was coming, that actually caused the faith to flourish. And such a radical people in the face of opposition, not trying to rebel against them violently, but persevering in faith and doing good and responding with godly character, even in the face of opposition, that caused the flourishing of the early church. And by the early fourth century, Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire, having spent hundreds of years being persecuted. God can bring fruitfulness from the hardships that we endure. We might expect of Jesus to, to be in a situation and be like, well, I don't owe that tax, so, you know, forget about them. They can think what they want. I'm not going to pay. No, Jesus actually pays the money, or he seems to. God can bring fruitfulness even from the hardships we might endure, even when there is injustice. And I wonder what that looks like with you, perhaps. When your boss doesn't like you, or a friend or family member treats you unfairly. When you don't get the credit that you feel that you deserve from from colleagues, how, how do you respond to those situations? Do you fight back? Well, the example of Jesus given before us here is to honor, is to respect. He shows through his life an example of serving and loving. Jesus said, love your enemies. Fearing God means that we honor those who do not deserve honors. Definitely that's going on here. Because when we are dishonored, when you are dishonored, your temptation, as it is mine, is to dishonor in return. You know, I can, I can point out and mention here the former chancellor and being dishonest perhaps with, with taxes, and I can, I can condemn that behavior and say that is wrong, but... I can't stand here and say, well, I'm going to refuse to pay my taxes <laughs> in response to that because then I'm just as bad as him. You see, the temptation when perhaps we've been insulted is to insult in return or when we feel that we've been harshly treated to, to hit back in kind. And I think Peter, in what he has to write and his reflections on this, 
interaction. And perhaps Matthew, by including this story in the gospel, specifically is pointing to Jesus and saying, no, that is not the Christian way to respond. Don't do that. Peter goes on in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. He says, for... To this you've been called because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example so that he might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So what's he saying? What do we do when we are unfairly treated, when things are demanded of us? that we feel is not right. So we sit there and take it and just submit and follow. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, yes. But I do also want to say, notice that in writing this, Peter does put fear God and honour the emperor. He puts them together. So let me say a word of caution on what I'm saying here. Because we mustn't ever let our honouring of the emperor or some authority or someone making demands of us, we shouldn't automatically think that just because they are doing that, that means we do whatever they say, especially if that response would be to dishonour God. If the emperor in your life is forcing you to do something or that goes against your conscience and certainly goes against the Bible, it's not good to comply with that. It's not what's being said here. In Jesus' life, we even see this. There's a time for paying the tax, even though we feel it's unjust. And there's also a time for turning over the tables and calling out the corruption. And we have to be wise to do both in the right situation. Because God is a God of justice and a special compassion for the vulnerable. And if you're in a position to say something or to stand up or to challenge when there is an abuse of power, then that is the right thing to do, to say something. We must be careful. We must be wise. This scripture and taking Jesus' example of just submitting and complying with a demand that is unreasonable, we can take that too far. This scripture can be very easily abused and submission to authority can be abused and sadly Christians can be particularly good at this. Honouring authority does not mean enduring suffering needlessly. What we're talking about here is the manner in which we respond to authority, not about whether we should or not. What I'm trying to say here, you can honour authority and still call out sin. You can honour authority and still resist its abuse. You can honour authority and speak up so that abuse is not further perpetrated against you or against others. And that's what Jesus did right the way through his ministry. So don't just see that Jesus submitting and paying this tax. Oh, Jesus is just a walkover. And that's the only thing we should ever do. Now, notice Jesus submits to the authority of the tax collector who demands payment. But Jesus' very point is that he does so as one who is free. Jesus, I believe, actually wants to teach us about empowerment here. 
Godly submission comes from a place of empowerment, not from a position of inappropriate subservience. And even when you do have to endure things as a Christian that are unjust, we must do it as sons, as daughters, as ones who are free, who are precious and who are empowered, not as people who are squashed. Let me focus on that a little bit more. Because it's what Jesus is speaking to Peter about. What do you think, Simon? From whom do you... Do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. What does he mean here? Well, remember what this is all about is tax. And it's about temple worship. It's about relating to God. In fact, let me read the verses out from Exodus chapter 30. It says, everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. This is what this tax was. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. Ah, that's interesting. Making atonement. This tax collector is wanting the money from Peter and Jesus. And on the one hand, pragmatically, it's about the upkeep of the temple But the whole point of this tax was it was a reminder that all of God's people, and by extension everyone actually, owed a debt of God for sin. This idea of atonement, this idea of ransom, this idea that every time this tax was to be paid was was to be a reminder to the people that by themselves, they were not right with God. They were not right, in, not in good standing with God. They owed God something for their sin, for their behavior, for the way that they have fallen short of God's goodness and His standard. Their sin needed to be paid for. It wasn't saying that they, the money paid for it. It was a reminder that a price for redemption needed to be paid. That's what this tax was about. And so, what about Jesus? Did did Jesus owe a debt to God? Jesus is pointing out, no. When Jesus said the sons are free, Jesus is pointing to his divinity. He's pointing to the fact, I am the son of God. I am one without sin. And if the tax collector could see that, if the tax collector could see what Peter was starting to realize, that this is the Christ, the Son of God, then he would, the tax collector would realize, this is ridiculous. Do you think my father would tax his own son? No, of course not. Jesus is helping Peter to see what is hidden to everyone else, that he is the Son of God. And yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus pays the tax. What does this speak of? <laughs> what is Jesus demonstrating? What is Jesus showing? He's showing us why he came. Why did Jesus pay the tax? Because that's what Jesus has come to do, to pay the debt of sin for you and me. To pay the price for redemption. 
That's what this tax was about. It was about atonement, being right with God. And this tax collector is one who thinks that, well, this is how I relate to God is through the temple. He doesn't realize that Jesus standing before him is the one who's making the whole temple system obsolete. Just shortly, you know, Jesus already referred to that. He's going to say, this temple will crumble and it'll be rebuilt in three days. And he's talking about his body. He's, Jesus is saying, I am the temple. I am the way to God. You relate to God through that system. That system is about to crumble. And that's why it happens in this way around. Jesus is shortly going to the cross to be the mediator, to be the one who pays the price, who be, to be the one to take upon himself the debt of sin and to rise again so that through faith in him we can relate to God as sons, as daughters. That's what he's talking about here. And the tax collector can't see it. The tax collector is still holding on to this old system of relating to God. We've got to pay this money. We've got to get right standing with God and money's the way to do it. Our behavior's the way to do it. Our works are the way to do it. Jesus is saying, you don't, <clears throat> you're not seeing it. This is, about, this is about to be obsolete. And that's what happens in history. Jesus dies, he's resurrected. And yeah, and then a few years later, the old temple is literally crumbles to the ground. We've already referred to that. Because the temple is obsolete. Jesus has come. The new way, the new covenant. He's the one that has come. The question of how do we relate to God has been answered in Christ. So that's the hundred shekel question for you and I. How do we relate to God? How do we deal with the price on our heads? The debt of sin that you and I have accrued in our life. What about your tax bill? What about your atonement? How are you right before God? Who's going to pay for the mess that you have made in your life through the things that you have done and said? You're sitting in church today. What about this week? What about the sin of this week? How can you stand in church and sing songs? How can you come before the communion tables? And worship God and relate to Him. What is your confidence in that? Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Everything we've done wrong, said wrong, thought wrong, God has seen it. And that has accrued a debt of sin before Him. In God's book of life, there would be a, an amount outstanding against our name for the sin that you and I have committed. What's that for you? How much do you owe to God? How much is it going to cost you to be right with a holy God? It's what this is about. It's what this tax reminds us of. For the atonement for their lives. What's the price on your head? What's the total next to your name? The good news is, Jesus has come. Jesus has come to wipe out the debt. He paid when he didn't have to. He paid though he owed nothing. That's what the cross is about. Jesus is saying here, sons don't have to pay. And yet the son paid gladly for you, for you and me. 
That's what the cross is about. Jesus Christ, the one who was free from sin, he became a debtor. He died a debtor's death. He took a debtor's punishment so that you could be free. He wants to bring you into the freedom that he has as the Son of God. And that is what this is about. That's what he has come to do, to pay the price for your sin. And that's why we come to the cross. That's why we come to Jesus. That's why we receive new life from him, because he's paid that price for our sin and wiped out that debt. That's good news, isn't it? (laughs) Aren't you glad we talked about tax today? This is what Jesus is like. This is our hope. This is our confidence. Come to him afresh today. Give him the sin of this week afresh today and through faith trust him. Jesus, I thank you. You've paid it all for me. My debt of sin has been washed away at the cross. He's paid it all and we are free to worship the Father as sons and daughters in his house. Amen. Amen.